Happy New Year, state of the art. It's a brand new decade. Welcome to 2020. Uh, I hope we have a lot of interesting adventures in the world of art and tech this year. I'm Gabe BC, your host for the podcast. You can always email me at gabe at thestateoftheart.org, or you can find us at State of the Art on Instagram as well. Oh, man, 2020 has kicked off to a rough start for me. I'll be honest with you. (laughs) I got like super sick right around New Year's and spent like four days in bed. So I was not looking forward to what's going to happen this year. We'll see. Hopefully things will turn out well. Uh, But, you know, I I bounced back, ended up dancing, uh, you know, late at night on New Year's Eve. Uh, So that was always good. Uh, A lot of interesting stuff has been happening. We'll get into that, you know, going forward. But uh, I'm just really excited for this year. We're going to have a lot of really great guests coming up on State of the Art. Thanks for staying with us over our little break there. Hopefully you enjoyed that New Orleans episode. I had a great time in New Orleans. Um, Today we have another artist. We're going to talk to an artist named Sophie Kahn. And Sophie creates uh, digital art and sculptures that address technology's failure to capture the unstable human body. And her pieces are amazing. Go online and take a look at them. Uh, We're going to post some on Instagram as well. There are these fragmented sculptures that she creates from 3D scans of models and and other sorts of people that she works with. Uh, She's going to talk about how she does these scans, you know, sort of the history of them, and then how she creates these 3D prints, which are really beautiful sculptures. So um, if you're into photography, if you're into sculpture, if you're into just hearing about how an artist works with new tools, this is a great episode for you. So let's kick it off here. I hope you're all having a great 2020. And Sophie Kahn, welcome to State of the Art. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be chatting with you today. And Happy New Year, too. This is our first episode of the the new decade. (laughs) So (laughs) it's great to have you on. Um, I want to start, just kind of jump into it. How would you describe your work to an audience who has never seen it before? Oh, goodness. Um, My work from a distance probably looks like fragmented classical sculpture. Mm -hmm. And as you move in, you notice that the damage and the fragmentation that's occurred to the sculpture is in fact a digital artifact and not an artifact of time or war or um, anything like that. And what is a digital artifact? The scanner that I use to create all my sculpture was never actually designed to capture the human body. It came from, I think, the movie industry, and they used it to scan the original Star Wars wooden ships from the 70s movies to bring them into the 3D animation. They used it to scan the hand-carved wands in the Harry Potter movies. So it wasn't designed for people that move and breathe and change over time. (laughs) When you do attempt to 3D scan a moving body, the scanner gets a set of conflicting spatial coordinates and it breaks down and the data that results is extremely partial. It has holes and gaps. It is covered in polygon kind of, sometimes it looks like a polygon fungus. It's visually degraded and it's filled with blind spots and that's what I really love about it as an artist. I love the idea of the polygon fungus. <laughs> There's a sort of digital growth that's happening there. So you yeah, you yeah, embrace yeah, this you embrace sort of this uh, malfunction of the hardware in your work. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and I want to also get before we go into your 3D work, I want to talk about mm-hmm. your background because you're trained in photography. Is that correct? I am. I am absolutely. And it's a little bit of a long story as to how I kind of came to this path, which I can 
go into now, if you yeah, like. Yeah, that would be great. I'm really interested in how you made that transition from photography to a three-dimensional medium. Absolutely. So I trained as a photographer. I did my undergrad at Goldsmiths College, the University of London, and I graduated in 2001. And at that time, the prevailing aesthetic in the photography world was what they call the Dusseldorf School. It was God's eye views of very large industrialized landscapes, often depopulated spaces, these supposedly purportedly neutral presentations and, and documents of architecture. And the work that I'd grown up looking at as a photographer and loving was the opposite. I loved Robert Frank. I loved Diane Arbus. I loved Francesca Woodman. And these were all artists who worked largely at street level, handheld 35 millimeter cameras. They made work from an embodied perspective and they photographed human bodies. And I wrapped up my photography studies. I was feeling also very sort of frustrated with the flatness of photography, with some of the limitations. I decided to enroll in a program to learn 3D architectural modeling because I thought maybe that could give me an element of fantasy or a way to kind of transform building spaces in a more playful and imaginative way and to incorporate that into my photography. That was my original goal. But when I got to this lab, the architects who ran this program also coincidentally happened to be working on the rebuilding of Gaudi's famously unfinished Sagrada Familia Cathedral. Mm -hmm. And they had a 3D scanner and a 3D printer, and they were using this technology to reverse engineer his maquettes. So they'd actually 3D scan Gaudi's plaster maquettes to try and get data and figure out how he had originally envisioned the cathedral uh, to look. And so as a photographer, I latched onto this device, the 3D scanner. And if you look up handheld laser scanner on YouTube, you can kind of get a sense of, of how one works. They use light and they use a lens and the scanner operator kind of paints in the area that they want scanned with a series of sweeping hand motions and it felt like a camera to me mm. you know it was light it was lens it was optics and but it felt more exciting than a camera because it showed you the incompleteness of our vision and you could scan you could see all the things that our eye can't and that a camera can't so I just got obsessed with this device and it felt like such a natural transition for me from my photographic practice if you look up handheld laser scanner on YouTube, you'll get a sense of how these devices work. They use a camera and they use a beam of laser light and the scanner operator sweeps the laser scanning handset over the thing that they want to image. So it felt very photographic to me. It, it was optical and lens-based and so it became a really natural extension of my practice as a photographer. And did you start off by scanning human beings then? Uh, or was it that you started to scan architectural objects just like you were learning in, uh, in, the, in the class? No, right away I wanted to scan people. And I remember having a conversation with the lab tech and I said to him, what happens if you use this thing wrong? And he <laughs> just looks at me, he goes, ugh. <laughs> 
it's gross. You get these floating chunks of data in space and it looks terrible. It looks like nothing. And right away I was like, yes, show me the chunks. I want to see the floating (laughs) chunks of data in space. So I kind of just had an intuition about it. And yeah, I, I was mostly scanning myself. The first scan that you did was of yourself? Uh, it was, yes. How do you how does one go about scanning yourself? Isn't it so, that you need yeah, some distance a from a model? Or? You actually have to kind of point the scanner at your face and it's a little bit like a 3D selfie. <laughs> I'm actually trying to build a selfie stick for it right now so I can huh. get a little more distance. Um and sometimes I'll have like my husband or an assistant scan me. Uh, so it, it's a little bit tricky, but I figured it out. And how long does it take approximately to scan yourself with this 3D scanner? So when you're working in a kind of very fast, expressive way, like I do, um, a scan can be between five and 10 minutes. If you want to do a scan really well, it can take you longer than that, you know, 20 or 30 minutes. And the, and the model or the subject has to hold still the entire time. They can't move around. Exactly right. So it's almost like a Victorian portraiture session. And I've actually thought I should get a Victorian portraitist's chair for my studio, complete with a metal brace to kind of hold the subject's neck really still. <laughs> Have you had any mishaps with the scans? Like, you know, models that can't pose for that long or situations where you, you're scanning somebody and something happens with the technology that you have to redo it? Oh, all the time, all the time. But I'm very much about error in my work. I think that as any artist working with technology, if you try to fight error, you're just going to be in a constant painful losing battle. So I try to keep a very sort of beginner's mind. Um, usually when I when I pick up a new tool, I try to not learn too much about it because I don't want to follow the prescribed path that the designers have laid out. So most of the interesting discoveries I've made in my work have originally come up, you know, come about as some kind of a mistake. And what what is it about errors that interests you? Um, you know, that's a good question. It's to me, it's almost like the that kind of magical moment that, you know, maybe only people of of my generation and back now will really remember. God, that ages me. Um, (laughs) That, you know, looking at a photograph developing in a tray of chemicals in a dark room and there's an element of surprise. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's something that you didn't expect and that you didn't fully control. And that's what really keeps me excited about working with this particular equipment. Um, Just that there's a way that it evades your grasp. It's interesting because I feel like today technology is used to present these perfect images of the world. Mm. You know, I'm thinking about on social media and you mentioned selfies already. Mm-hmm. You know, we use all these filters and we use these perfect cameras with depth sensors. Mm-hmm. But you're taking the technology and kind of embracing the mistakes that it provides. It's really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And, do, you know, do, actually, I'm working on a whole new body of work that is about the ways that particularly the female body is manipulated and circulated and commodified in in imagery that we see and i'm i I sort of sought out models who said that they had been through some form of physical transformation or other um i had one model who had a preventative mastectomy because she found out she was a carrier for the BRCA gene um i had a model who'd undergone uh, bariatric surgery a model who was seven months pregnant with twins a model who was an eating disorder survivor and then 
the part of the follow-up portrait is that we work on the data and we sculpt it, we transform it, but not in your kind of Instagram transformation Tuesday, you know, before and after, but mm-hmm. hopefully something that's a little more radical in ways that these women are thinking about their own bodies and that I'm thinking about ways that we look at female bodies. But, yeah, I mean, absolutely, you know, the the avatar as something that's very malleable and fluid is is fascinating to me. And how? what kind of transformations are you creating? Are you doing these digitally after you scan the bodies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Using ZBrush and other kind of sculpting software. You know, the project is really new. Um, mm-hmm. So it's going to be a fair while before I have a really good answer to, <laughs> unfortunately, to any questions about No, that's okay. It's, and we get to hear it first. <laughs> so it's very interesting. phase of a project. Um, but I'm asking them, you know, how would you want to change your body? Um, if you if you could, and what would it look like to do that in a way that was beyond the kind of ordinary desire, the ways that women have been conditioned to want to change our bodies? Do you think that in the future we're all going to be sort of living through these multiple avatar forms of ourselves? Sort of a speculative question, but <laughs> uh, well, you mentioned yeah, the avatar. Possibly. And- I mean, you know, you, I think ourselves are kind of very – fragmented and and sent into different places and performative too you know depending on on context and um where it's being communicated yeah do um (laughs) this is another kind of spin-off question from that Mm. but as an artist do you feel like sometimes you're sort of performing an avatar version of yourself that's something that i find sometimes (laughs) when i'm showing my work or maybe out in public (laughs) (laughs) maybe i think we're probably all every every part of our life is is a kind of performance you know I come yeah, home definitely. and I'm a parent and I'm I'm performing that and <laughs> yeah. Uh, so for your process, you 3D scan someone. They sit for you for the session. Yeah. Um, and then you take that 3D scan and you convert it into a sculpture. What's that process like? Is there yes. a lot of cleanup that has to be done, or do you leave yeah. all the chunks floating in space? That process is really painful, and I sometimes feel that actually I'm one of the few artists who would really tolerate like. like all the nonsense that is involved um i have to use about 10 different pieces of software because as anyone who works in 3d knows there is no one really good app that will do all these functions um right i uh i have to give it a thickness and i have to make kind of structural corrections and then i also have to make a lot of decisions about the the actual composition the gesture I want some kind of humanity and some kind of feel that the model has tried to communicate to to come through and to be conveyed. So I'm always looking for that kind of the gesture and the emotion. Um, but then also the object has to be legible by a 3D printer and it has to obey the laws of physics and it has to not break or fall over. So um, it's a pretty long journey. It's usually at least a month to get it sculpted to a point where it's ready to fabricate. And the fabrication process is 3D printing, and then you do you do other processes as well to the model? Yes. So it's mostly I 3D print uh, in nylon at a pretty large scale, although I'm also exploring a series of reliefs right now using uh, CNC milling. Um, but, yeah, then I will also – I will usually uh, gesso and hand paint my models um, because I'm moving really away from wanting to – present work that is kind of 
this really problematic default white plastic um, that like looks like the machine spat it out. And and I want to show the artist's hand and I want to restore skin tone too. I'm bringing in my model skin tones and tattoos for the first time in this new series. So there's a, that idea of humanizing the digital is uh, has become really important in how the object itself is handled. And so in these new models, you're going to actually be able to see sort of the skin and the tattoos on the prints? Yeah, absolutely. Using uh, inkjet, inkjet transfers. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's coming back to a sense of the photographic too. And it's, again, very imperfect, you know, to wrap a 2D image onto a 3D surface obviously is is not going to give you an exact result. And so it's going to be very kind of torn and fragmented. And again, that's that's just how I want it. And what about uh, in terms of showing 3D printed work? Is there is there a stigma against that in the art world, do you find? Or is it really embraced as sort of a new medium um, that people are used to nowadays? Uh, you know, I think we're maybe somewhere in between. Um, we have seen a few of the major art museums begin to collect work that's 3D printed. Um, I do think collectors sometimes want metal or they have concerns about a work's archival qualities. But I mean, more and more, I think we've seen that the art world can monetize absolutely anything. You know, you can... <laughs> a banana, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. Right. But, you know, you can burn a DVD and say, this is only right. one of five DVDs I'll ever burn, and you can sell that for 50 grand. So, um, yeah, it's like getting back to photography, right? Exactly. That made a big transition for people. Photography, you know, in theory, you could produce an infinite number of these, but, you know, we have this artifice called limited edition. Um, no, I mean, you know, I think that there still is a little bit of a concern around among collectors, particularly of an older generation. Um, and the sad irony is these plastics will probably, you know, outlive us all in landfill by 20,000 years. Right. Yeah, I was wondering if you if you think about sort of the future of your work, mm-hmm. um, and or if you put certain practices in place uh, before you actually show a work to think about the longevity of a sculpture. Yeah, I mean, for me, painting them actually handles a lot of the issues with SLS because SLS is porous, and so it'll pick up on atmospheric contaminants, and and that's why it yellows. It's not an internal degradation. It's um it's sort of from pollution basically. So if I seal and prime a surface, then that gets around those for the most part. There are it's fun. There are some kind of benefits too to showing work that's um lightweight and plastic so I had a show in Beijing a few years back and there was so much back and forth around FedExing and there are a lot of issues around kind of importing art into China Um, a lot of galleries there actually have international artists fabricate their work locally to get around this stuff but I said look just fly me to Beijing you know my work is modular I, I live in New York City I designed them all to be flat and easily broken down into parts and so I put my whole show in my suitcase and it's you (laughs) know it's (laughs) it's as tough as like a keyboard or a mouse or a phone case you know so um the show survived and it it all came through the airport and we installed it and um you know the case weighed maybe like 20 pounds so it's uh you know plastics of the future right <laughs> that's a pretty incredible feat to put a whole show into a suitcase i'm very yeah, envious yeah, of you yeah yeah <laughs> plus then you get to be flown around to all these uh, amazing locations you're just like yeah, oh, i'll come well, do it for you too. <laughs> <laughs> um i'm curious about what what the models think when they see themselves as a 3d print afterwards 
Like, yeah, what is their reaction? Um, I, the first time I did it, I actually found it kind of profoundly unsettling. And there's an anecdote that I tell a lot where the first 3D scan I saw of my face when my skin tone was stripped away, replaced, like I said, by this kind of default white gray. Um, there's no motion. You have to close your eyes because you're protecting them from the laser beam. You know, my face looked like a death mask. And mm. that's actually something that my work has engaged with a great deal over the past decade is this idea of the unintended emotional resonances that are generated by kind of technological modes of representation, this creepiness and, and haunted quality. So there's something that's a little disturbing about it, you know, and I wonder how people felt when they when first encountered photography, maybe not dissimilar. That it's sort of providing this fake version of reality or like mm. that we can see an alternate Absolutely. version of ourselves. And the ability to see yourself from the outside. Um, I also have a, a really lovely anecdote where there was a, a curator I scanned who had, uh, he was mixed race and I think that he had kind of, he resembled his, he always felt that he resembled his mother because he inherited his mother's skin tone. He, you know, his skin was a lot closer to his mother's than to his father's. But when we did the 3D scan um, and it showed the geometry and the bone structure of his face, he looked at it and he goes, oh, my God, I look like my dad. I never mm. realized that before. <laughs> so wow. it kind of it seeing like just your geometry and not your color can be a really strange experience too. And when you're putting together a 3D model, right, those are two separate things that you're working Absolutely. with. Absolutely, yeah. So it's like yeah. the mesh and the material. Is that kind of exactly. how it works? Exactly, yes. Huh. And my scanner doesn't even capture color, so I have to use a separate DSLR if I want texture. Wow, so it's a lot of different materials going in there mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's so interesting. And you mentioned sort of the idea that your sculptures are associated with death. Mm. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like I kind of – I understand the idea that they – almost have like a death mask quality in some way. Mm -hmm. um, have you thought about creating a series of work based on this idea? Yeah, I actually have a show opening next month that's very much around that idea. Um, oh. <laughs> I, last <laughs> year I was about? resident at Pioneer Works uh, out in Red Hook in Brooklyn and I scanned some Bouteau performers and the one directive that I really gave them was to fall. And so I scanned them as they improvised kind of different poses of falling and we had them supported on all kinds of things that you don't see in the final scan, you know, like exercise balls and chairs and they're kind of draped over all these different things. And then in the final images they look like they're kind of floating and, and falling through space and, you know, gravity is inverted. And so I'm making a show where those are kind of, displayed as tombstone reliefs they're these kind of avatars that are you know disembodied um and there's really like quite a long history of that again coming back to photography people talk about um there's all this theory about the photograph being like a corpse or a, a zombie you know it's it's the person but it has no life um or there's the the eeriness of the kind of dorian gray quality where the person ages but the photograph remains fixed and there's so much writing around photography and death around the idea that we are kind of making images of people 
to remember them in, you know, in in case they die. We're kind of hedging against death and trying to preserve all these memories, but that that drive is kind of imbued into the image. And I also remember once I had a had a discussion with a, one of my professors in grad school and he was quite an old school architect and he said to me, you know, whenever my students make something in a 3D model, you know, no matter what they what they want, what they're trying to achieve, it just comes out looking like a block of ice. And mm. your first thought is that that's kind of a retrograde thing to say, but to be honest, I agree with him. <laughs> <laughs> there is an eeriness to digital duplication that it, it doesn't really capture very much about real embodied experience at all. And so I'm trying to draw that out and highlight that in these works. So you're not necessarily trying to make them more alive. You're trying to make like bring out the relationship with technology mm. and the, it, the idea mm-hmm. of capturing this image and what that does to us. In a way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that I'm just thinking about how much we take photos of ourselves these days then? Mm-hmm. We're zooming back on this. I mean, do you think that we're all kind of preparing for our own deaths in the same yeah. way that people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, a, another anecdote that I've used a lot is um, a quote by the British artist and writer and theorist Tom McCarthy, who wrote an essay called Transmission and the Individual Remix. And that's exactly his thesis, that our photographic archives and our trails of data that we leave through space, um, he says we're building our own tombs. <laughs> And do you think that's the case? Do you, I, do you yeah, also like that? I, I kind of do, you know. I mean, it, it very much puts you in the mind of wondering what a future archivist would make of, of any of this. And why? So I'm looking at some of your prints on online and you have a series called Machines for Suffering. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that series and why it's called Machines for Suffering? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that comes from a quote that... Um, Pablo Picasso apparently said to his mistress, Dora Maher, and he said, uh, a woman is a machine for suffering. So, you know, thanks. <laughs> thanks for right. that, Pablo. Um, so that that's from a long series, a body of work that I had just wrapped up a bit earlier last year. Um, and that same one, actually, that you and I showed um, in the show we were in together at C24 Gallery. Right. And it was based on my research into female hysteria, which is um, uh, now obviously completely discounted, but once very prevalent diagnosis, applied largely to women up until the turn of the past century. Um, although interestingly, there were a few male hysterics and they were largely returning soldiers from World War One with what we would now call PTSD. Mm-hmm. So... The women who had this disorder, perhaps now we would say had epilepsy or perhaps they were schizophrenic, perhaps they had some specific intersection of illness and culture that couldn't arise now in the 21st century. Um, But anyway, they were basically, you know, incarcerated at this asylum and they were electroshocked and hypnotized and subject to this device called an ovarian compressor and made to perform these fits, basically, at teaching lectures that were attended by many, many, many hundreds of people in Paris. And what interested me about that history was the ways in which photography was used to capture the women's bodies and the way that that transaction was very violent and actually seemed to almost kind of wreak damage on the thing that it 
it represented. It wasn't a staid, you know, camera gazing serenely at a model and the model serenely gazing back. You know, photography was a very, um, very violent thing that was done in this context. And so it kind of got me thinking about all kinds of theories about the violence of representation. And so long story short, um, I took the Pose library that uh, Dr. Jean-Martin Charcot had developed and I choreographed a series of dancers. So they enacted all the phases of hysteria that you can see in the work. And they have these incredible names. You know, there's the period of epilepsy and the period of passionate attitudes, the period of clownism. And I had them reenact them for the scanner and then created both 3D prints and um, the 3D renders that you talked about that I sort of think is of as blueprints for the larger sculptures. No, that's fantastic. And is there is it is the process of working with prints, uh, non 3D prints, I guess, two dimensional prints mm -hmm. different for you than working with these 3D models? Like, do you see that there's different affordances in each? Yeah, they they are quite different. Um, I do like to sort of suggest something that looks like a sculptor's preparatory drawing. And then I do always return to these kind of architectural metaphors, because the idea of a blueprint for a female body was really intriguing to me. The idea of the body is something that might be kind of under construction and that might be a, you know, an eternal project, internally being demolished, eternally being built, eternally being kind of worked on. Um, is that sort that, of why yeah. the scaffolding too? Like I, I see yeah, that there's a scaffolding yeah. in, in a lot of your Absolutely. work. Absolutely. I want to suggest something that's monumental and, and my dream with these would be to produce them at, you know, a really large scale. That would be amazing. Uh, I hope that happens. Are you Are you applying for public art grants for that very thing? I do, but my work's a little dark. <laughs> Absolutely, um, it's a little dark and a little racy for some of the, you know, government-sponsored public art kind of city plaza projects. So really what it needs is, you know, a museum and a donor or an institutional partner to realise something that's going to be like a little more risky. You don't think they want like a giant death mask out in the middle mm -hmm. of uh, <laughs> it would be a little bit of a Madison Square Park, I think. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so where does this darkness come from? Because you, you, you know, we're talking to you here on the podcast, you seem like a very cheery person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it's, I don't know, I, I can channel it. <laughs> <laughs> Are you channeling like it the... all in the work and then I can like go home and uh, be in a good mood? That, that could, yeah. Be <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, it's amazing that you can do that. That's something that uh, a lot of artists can't leave behind. <laughs> so what's coming up next? You mentioned that the you're working on a residency coming up. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I'm off to Mass Mocha. Uh, the studio is at Mass Mocha for two weeks um, later this month, which is a dream as, you know, as a mom of two, because I can, as much as I adore my family, it means I get two weeks to just work through data without having to do dishes and laundry and, uh, you know, take someone to the doctor and um, all of that. So that's going to be just hibernation and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. So I'm going to wrap up the Bouteau works. Um, I have a one-week show coming up at the SVA Curatorial Galleries, um, which is going to open on, I believe, the um, the 12th of March or the, the 15th of March. It'll be mid-March and I'll announce it on my site. And so I'm trying to complete those works in time for that. And I'm still looking for models for my body transformation series. So if anyone feels that they've been through any type of physical transformation, 
and would be interested in kind of translating that experience into a modeling session and you're, you know, in the New York area, please uh, get in touch. How do people get in touch with you? Uh, through Instagram is actually usually the easiest way. Um, there's a, and, but there's also a email link on my website and my, yeah. And we'll put a, we'll put a link to your Instagram in this uh, yeah, podcast as fantastic. well. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, have you ever scanned your kids? You know, I'm only just thinking about it now because the scanner actually isn't eye safe. And oh, they peak, wow. you know, I don't want to kind of, <laughs> yeah, uh, that could my be dangerous. older one is 10. And so I think I could probably have her come and model for me if, she, if yeah, she's I was gonna interested. Say, it seems like it'd be super exciting to do a scan session with, with your kids. Yeah, I'm curious what you do. yeah, I'll see if I can sell her on it. So when you go to a, a residency, you just bring the scanner with you and you bring like a million computers too? Or <laughs> I'm wondering like, what's you know, your paintbrush that you're bringing? I didn't even actually think about bringing the scanner this time. I probably should. <laughs> <laughs> I should bring it. Um, I uh, For this one, it would just be my laptop. You know, sometimes in the past I've brought along inkjet prints that I was wanting to paint onto, um, but this time I'm going to be keeping it really minimal and I really just want to crunch through my data. So what I may do is bring like a Pico projector so I can workshop scale and sizes and project on the studio wall, but otherwise I'm just kind of sculpting. So in my emails to them I said, I don't need natural light, I don't need a massive studio, I just want a really comfortable office chair. That's all that I need is a good <laughs> That's like chair. the ultimate media artist tool. A yeah, comfortable art I know, office chair. Right? I'm like, I can't be sitting in a wooden folding chair with my arm at an awkward angle for eight hours working on NetFab or I'll, you know, come home with carpal tunnel. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. Well, that's <laughs> exciting. And so the the show SVA is also going to be in New York. It will be. Yeah, yeah. And that's in March. Yeah, that's right. And it'll be in the um their building on uh, West Twenty First Street. Oh, fantastic! I can't wait. Um, so before we go, I actually have a series of rapid fire questions for you. This is something that we do at the end of every episode of state of the art. Um, these are questions that are not necessarily tied to your artwork at all. Mm -hmm. So they're just really the first thing that pops in your mind. There's no wrong answers here. Whatsoever. Okay, go for it. Uh, so, um, the first one is if you could time travel to either the future or the past, which one would you choose and why? Oh God. I mean, I really, unfortunately, and especially as an Australian right now, seeing kind of my my home country pretty much on fire, um, I don't think I want to know what happens in the future. I <laughs> yeah, I I can't imagine that it's anything good at this point. I think the nation is really kind of wrapped in this grief about climate change and and what we've done. So um, yeah, back back all the way, just maybe not pre-antibiotics. <laughs> so, so right right around the time of antibiotics being invented, that's when you yeah, want to go Yeah, there you go. That, that'd be okay, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, if you could create a portrait of one fictional person, who would you choose and why? Oh, wow. Um, if you could 3D scan a fictional person, I guess I should say. Mm, um, oh. I'm not good at this type of thing, actually. That's okay. That's why we do it. <laughs> can I pass on that one? Sorry. Yeah, sure. Oh, you I can might, think about 3 it. 3 a.m., I'm going to have a really good answer for you. I'm sure I I'll wake up and be like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> This is the moment. I always get texts after the podcast with people with their actual answers. So if yeah. you think of something, we can reinsert it. <laughs> or if something pops in while I'm asking you other questions, just, you know, yeah, go for I will. it. I will. Um, so since it is the new year, do you have any New Year's resolutions? Um. 
they're really boring. I'm just trying to be more productive. I'm trying to log more consistent hours uh, at my computer and I'm trying to not get quite so obsessive on tiny details and be completely in my head and just try and get work out there. How do you do that? I mean, your work seems like it's all about tiny details. Like, how do you choose Mm. what to remove or leave in in the end? I don't know. (laughs) I'll tell you in December. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's... that's... I mean, the details are incredibly important. Um, And, you know, it is why I sort of err on the side of making less work rather than more. Um, But sometimes a deadline is a deadline and you've just got to, like, get your butt in gear and uh, make something. How do you know when you're finished with a sculpture? This is outside of the rapid fire questions, but mm. I'm just curious because, you know, it seems like you could go on editing these, some of these sculptures forever. I know. Is there I, a could, point where you... I could, I could, I could, I think maybe just when I'm so sick of looking at it that I just want to get it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, That's the I end do. Then. I do really obsess there and, you know, down to the sort of tiny triangles, um, Unfortunately, you do sometimes need that level of precision just to catch anything that might not be printable. Mm-hmm. But I also find when I have really close deadlines and when, you know, opportunities fall in my lap with very little warning that it actually I'm happier with the work I make because I don't have time to overthink it. So I do try to kind of cultivate those opportunities to to put myself in that situation where I just have to make something. Um, Part of the terror of being an artist is knowing when you're done, right? And so if you don't have that deadline, it's so much easier in some ways. Yeah, I know. I know. And, you know, I'm really not a believer in this idea of like the cult of done. You know, I I really think – I'd rather spend a month making one thing that I'm 100% happy with than, you know, kind of churn out a feed of content. Um, and maybe that approach kind of puts me a little bit out of step, but uh, it's really how I need to work. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, last rapid fire question. If you yep. could have one meal that you would eat, the same meal for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? <laughs> um, one meal. Tantan men, Japanese chili uh, sesame ramen. <laughs> and why? You just love it? There's, <laughs> I'm not sure I have a why. I think it's just like, it's just the perfect thing. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. That makes sense to me. <laughs> Sophie Khan, thank you so much for being on State of the Art today. Uh, it's a real pleasure talking to you and I can't wait to see what you come up with next. Um, looking forward to seeing your next show. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for the interview. It was great chatting with you. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. It was great talking to Sophie Khan. Uh, you can see her work at Sophie underscore K underscore Khan on Instagram or at SophieKhan.net. For State of the Art, this is Gabe BC. You can find me at, at Gabe BC on pretty much every social media network. State of the Art is an at art production originally created by Ethan Appleby. Weston Stevens is our audio engineer extraordinaire. And Vanessa Wilson has been helping to find all these great guests for years and years here. She is our producer of the podcast. Stay tuned next week for another great guest. Uh, Every Thursday, we're going to drop a new one this entire decade. So (laughs) stay tuned and we'll talk soon. Bye.